This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. A number of countries and some states are now beginning to tiptoe away from coronavirus so we can all take our first tentative steps toward the door. Governors on both coasts have formed alliances to jointly tackle the job. Seven northeast states have agreed to work together. So have the three west coast states. And ABC's Alex Stone is with us from Los Angeles. California Governor Gavin Newsom laid out the makings of his reentry plan today. Alex, what are some of the components? Restaurants, when they finally reopen, they're going to have fewer tables in them. Waiters will likely be wearing gloves and face masks. Menus will be disposable. Your temperature is probably going to be checked when you enter a restaurant. And that face coverings are going to be common in public, whether at a restaurant or going to work or walking down the street for a long time to come. And that's another part of ramping all of this down and beginning to to lessen these restrictions. They say everybody needs access to masks. Hospitals need access to the protective gear that they need, that until all of the the PPE, all of that gear is around, they they really can't change any of the rules that are in place. Alex, that's a lot of ifs. It is a lot of ifs right now. Nothing is firm. And as much as we've heard from the White House that they would like to, to get things rolling, The governor here is saying it just can't go that quickly. He says this is going to be based in California on science and on public health, that politics will not be guiding this, that a desire just to reopen the economy will not be guiding this. He says it's going to depend on that testing, on that tracing, and really understanding where they're going with it. And the governor is leaving open the possibility that once they begin to loosen restrictions, that they may have to put them in, back in place. And they may even be more severe than what we have right now. That they could loosen them, find out that there is a second wave, like what we've seen in areas of China and in South Korea, and then they could clamp down even more than what we're used to right now. So this is all very uncertain. Will our kids go back to school in September or in August? Nobody knows. The governor can't answer that. Will there be football here in California in August? The governor has said he doesn't think so, at least with crowds. What will our lives look like over the next couple of months? Maybe what they look like right now at home? The governor says he just doesn't know. And so no timetable then, Alex, for this wonderful prospect of having your temperature checked just to go into a restaurant? Well, it's pretty clear this is not going to be immediate, that they are looking down the road here. It could be weeks. It could be months. The governor is saying, ask me in two weeks where we are. And then I may be able to give you a timeline on all of this. But what they're doing here is the state is going down a number of different really bullet points that they've got that they say that before California will even think of reopening, that they're going to have to make sure that the hospitals could handle a surge, handle anybody who ends up getting sick when people begin going out into the community, that there would have to be capacity built in to the overall system. There has to be therapeutic drugs that are going to be out there, that there has to be measures in place to make sure that schools and businesses and child care centers, that there's more physical distancing and bottom line, a lot more testing and tracing that until there is a better infrastructure set up to do that testing, to do that contact tracing, the governor is saying they just can't reopen, that that has to be in place first. 
ABC's Alex Stone in Los Angeles. And as if to reinforce this take-it-slow approach, California reported its highest single-day death toll from coronavirus. On the opposite side of the country, New York may have reached a coronavirus plateau, but won at what Governor Andrew Cuomo called a devastating level of pain and grief. The death toll in this state nears 11,000, and in particular, deaths in nursing homes the governor called troublingly high. The percentage of loss of life is getting higher in the nursing homes compared to the hospitals. In Massachusetts, Governor Charlie Baker said nearly half of the coronavirus deaths in his state occurred among nursing home residents. My dad's in one of those facilities, so I take this stuff pretty seriously. Dr. Imran Ali joins us now from the University of Connecticut Center on Aging. Why are so many dying in nursing homes in this pandemic? Well, we know that we're dealing with a population which is significantly older. And although we see coronavirus infections in anybody as young as, you know, five years old, even younger to age 99, the majority of people who die from this disease is still those people who are above you know, 65, and those who have multiple comorbidities. And, I mean, if you look at the average adult, older adult, over age of 65, they have diabetes, hypertension, COPD, lung disease, heart disease, and they're on so many different medications to manage all these things. And we are now learning a little bit more about this virus, that it not only causes lung problems, it causes significant heart problems, almost a viral myocarditis, where the virus itself affects the tissue of the heart, making the heart less efficient in pumping. And that is also another contributing factor why we see so many people do so poorly in advanced age, because they already have so many issues with their heart and their lungs to begin with. Is there something about the nursing home itself that's an incubator for this virus? Well, we do know that certified nurses' aides, and I know personally that a lot of them are turning up positive, and hence that's why they're so afraid of losing their jobs, and some some of them don't want to be tested, period, because they are in very close contact with these patients And so if there is a spread, it's going to happen, you know, very quickly because there's a lot of close contact with one certified nurse's aide among many residents because there's a staffing issue. So there's one nurse's aide for maybe 10 patients. So if that nurse's aide is positive, they're in very close contact with potentially 10 patients. And these nurses' aides are feeding patients, providing breathing treatments, changing them. They're spending prolonged periods of time with these patients. So the possibility of not only catching a virus, but spreading it is really high. Are nursing homes safe for the residents at this point? So, Aaron, I get this question asked a lot of times. And, you know, I'm going to have to agree with the Los Angeles County Health Director. If your relative or loved one is relatively independent, at this point in time, if you can take them out of the nursing home for the time being, I would suggest that would be a wise thing to do if you're able to care for them at home. And I say that because it's just a fact of the matter that we really don't know the scope of the problem 
right now until we get more testing done and until we have more staffing that we can have, you know, a lower reduced, a reduced risk of transmitting this infection. I think right now nursing homes are a place where it, it's, it's really unclear how bad the infection rates are. But from the statistics that we're getting out of New York and from Los Angeles, I think it, it shows that we're really seeing a high rate of infections in nursing homes, particularly. Dr. Imran Ali at the Yukon Center on Aging, a FEMA official, told ABC News the Centers for Disease Control and federal regulators have now finalized a plan for nursing homes to report COVID-19 data to the National Health Care Safety Network. The hope now is to find a solution to this incredibly high death rate in the nation's long-term care facilities. With tens of millions of Americans set to receive stimulus payments this week from the federal government, scam artists see an opportunity. Donna Harris of the U.S. Postal Inspection Service is with us now. The checks are in the mail this week. Donna, what could possibly go wrong? You know, scammers, anytime there's a opportunity, scammers look at a crisis as an opportunity. And anytime there's a situation, they always look for new ways to um, scam victims out of their money. So they know the check is coming this week. So I'm going to, as a scammer, I'll send you a letter that um, says this is your stimulus check. But, um, you know, to get it earlier or to get this, um, to deposit it quicker and get your money faster, send X amount of dollars. And as far-fetched as this sounds, people fall for it. And so scam artists continue to do it. Exactly. Uh, we, we like to say what's old is new. And anytime, uh, you know, it's just a new variation on an old scam. Donna Harris at the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Coming up, how coronavirus is affecting college admissions. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this. <laughs> listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, there is some news from the World Health Organization that infection does not guarantee immunity. What do we know about this? Right. This is an evolving and dynamic situation, Amy, and it's so important in medicine and science to be comfortable, intellectually comfortable, saying what we know, what we think we know, and what we don't know. So what we know right now about coronaviruses, based on the other species, remember, some of which cause the common cold. So we do know that there is some immune protection that's generated after the exposure to some coronaviruses, and it can last about a year, sometimes a little bit more. Yes, some protection, not complete protection necessarily. And are there indicators that a sizable number of people may never show any symptoms, but, and this is the scary part, can still be infectious? Exactly. And we've been saying that from the beginning. But now, as more testing is being done, not just here, but in other countries around the world, we're learning some more numbers to put to that theory. We think that about 25 to 50 percent of people infected with coronavirus can be asymptomatic. The 50 percent number just coming recently out of data from Iceland, where they're able to test more people because their country is so much smaller. And we do know that people who are not showing symptoms themselves or feel totally fine can pass the virus. So again, 
we we think that that's a major driver at this point. Yeah, 50% is a stunning number there. And there's still a lot for us to learn about this. What don't we know right now that we need to know? Well, we don't know if people who are mild or totally asymptomatic develop the same degree of immune protection down the road. That's going to be really important as you hear more and more about this antibody testing. We don't know how long those antibodies will last, and we still don't know if you can be reinfected. Recent data just out of South Korea is finding that some people who were positive, then tested negative, test positive again down the road. And we just don't know whether that means those people are just carrying the virus and can't spread it, or they're reinfected Mm -hmm. or reactivated. So still a lot to learn. Indeed. All right, Dr. Jen, you'll be with us in just a bit. In the meantime, we turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips, who's in Washington, D.C., with all the latest headlines for us. Hi, Amy. Here's the developments that we're watching for you right now. The Pentagon signing a $415 million contract to decontaminate those all-important N95 respirator masks, expecting to disinfect some 80,000 N95s a day. This would actually allow folks to reuse them up to 20 times. Six facilities are already up and running in New York, Columbus, Boston, Chicago, and Tacoma. Officials in California unveil a plan to ease stay-at-home restrictions and reopen the state's economy. The governor says new metrics are guiding that decision to lift the statewide order that's been in place since March 19th. And the Tour de France overseas breaking a chain. The beloved sporting event postponed due to the COVID-19 crisis. Organizers say it's impossible for the three-week race to start on June 27th. So now another world-renowned event on hold. President Macron has decided that all public events with large crowds will be put off now until mid-July in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, COVID-19 has claimed more than 23,000 lives here in the United States and with the state of Louisiana, one of the hotspots here to talk about what's happening there on the front lines of the state capital city is Baton Rouge Mayor Sharon Weston Broom. Mayor Broom, thank you so much for joining us and give us a sense of how your city is doing, how you're holding up. Well, our city is uh, diligently complying with the uh, stay-at-home order. We do believe that we uh, see some light at the end of the tunnel as it relates to uh, flattening the curve. And so we have been taking the initiative, and I think this has helped us early on, uh, before we had our first case, we started educating our people around COVID-19. And then we started setting up our own testing site, a collaboration of local government and our local hospitals here. 70 percent of deaths from coronavirus there in Louisiana are all within the African-American community. So how is the state and your city responding to this overwhelming and disturbing statistic? Well, what you're seeing, Amy, for sure, is uh, the intersection of poverty and COVID-19, something that we have been aware of here in Louisiana, the high poverty rate, the disinvestment that exists in many communities. And so uh, what we are now doing, of course, is elevating the message 
in our communities of disinvestment, in our communities of color, about being alert and following the guidelines uh, that have been established to uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19 uh, in our community. We recognize that there are a lot of underlying health conditions that have been dominant in the African-American community for years. And so we have to have a heightened awareness about that. But moving forward, we need to make sure that we are shaping policies that close the equity around health. All right, let's talk about Pastor Tony Spell. He has described the stay-at-home order there as a, quote, government overreach, and he's vowed to continue practicing what he calls our freedom of religion. Are you working with other authorities to stop his services right now? We have already, the uh, local government, our governor, uh, the uh, law enforcement in our area has already filed charges. He will have a day in court. But the bigger picture is, uh, of course, he's an anomaly. But we have hundreds of pastors and churches here in Baton Rouge that are indeed complying with the stay-at-home order. They don't get the attention. Of course, he's an anomaly. He's getting the attention. His numbers are inflated. And he is acting irresponsible for his congregation and for those citizens in the surrounding area. The situation is being uh, monitored, and he will have a day in court. Yeah, and as you say, the majority of people are following the rules, and that is important to note. Mayor Broom, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate your time and your service. Thank you so much. The USNS Comfort has been docked in New York City for nearly two weeks now. Commanding Officer and Captain Patrick Amersbach joins us now for an update. And Captain, we know originally your mission was to treat up to 1,000 non-COVID cases, but that has changed. You're now treating up to 500 patients with coronavirus. Why the switch? Uh, uh, The switch was at the request of uh, the city of New York. So we made some adjustments. Uh, We're good at that in the military and the Navy. So we made adjustments uh, to uh, our physical uh, facility as far as a hospital aboard the ship. We put up environmental controls uh, around that to, to help safeguard our personnel. And uh, we're doing what we can. And that is taking care of COVID positive patients. That's what we'll continue to do. Yeah, and we are certainly all appreciative of that. Give us a sense of how many patients you're treating at this time and what their conditions are. Are these critical patients that you're treating? Sure. So we, we've treated over 120. We uh, currently have uh, roughly 30 in our ICUs. Over half of those are vented patients, very complex medical patients, the same that uh, are being seen in the, the hospital system in New York City. Yes, uh, we, we are doing what we can. And uh, from a complexity perspective, these are uh, as sick as they possibly can be, unfortunately. Uh, They are getting world-class care, which is what we're here to do. And we believe, honestly, in our hearts that we are making an impact on the city of New York. Oh, we know you are, too. And uh, again, our gratitude is is so real and so huge. We want to make sure you guys know and feel how much we appreciate you frontline heroes out there. And and in light of that, it is important to note a crew member of yours did test positive for the virus. How are they doing? And did that change any procedures on board? That crew member is is doing great. Um, it had not changed any of the procedures. We continue to do what we've been doing all, all along since our mission changed to COVID positive. So we are following uh, CDC and DOD guidelines for PPE, social distancing, um, all of those other measures in place, including those uh, uh, environmental controls uh, in order to, to safeguard our crew. 
Uh, we also had uh, three that were tested positive recently, and uh, they're all back to work and, and doing great. Uh, they're back in the fight to help the city of New York. But this individual, they are also doing well and in good spirits. Captain Patrick Amersbach, please tell the crew how much we appreciate them as well. Thank you so much. Will do. Thank you very much. And coming up right here on what you need to know, much-needed strategy for college-bound kids and their families, the admissions process in a state of confusion right now. Stay with us. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We're back now with the college campus headline, Boston University among the first to announce its fall semester won't start until January of 2021. The college application scramble is already so stressful, but right now students are facing even more uncertainty than ever before. So here to sort through the confusion is president of the National Association for College Admission Counseling, Jane Fonash. Thank you for being with us, Jane. And first off, what is the current state of college admissions for high school seniors right now? Well, as you probably know, the COVID epidemic struck at precisely the time that high school seniors are making final decisions about enrollment for their studies for next year. The landscape is changing every day, as evidenced by the announcement that you made at the beginning of this piece. So as college admission counselors and admission officers, we are challenged every day to look at this changing landscape and support students and provide information to help them make these important life decisions. Yeah, so what, what could happen if college campuses still aren't open come the fall? I think that's probably one of the highest priority questions being addressed on college campuses right now because there are so many unknowns. And until we have more medical information and more guidance on large gatherings, they are address addressing issues like, will we open on time? Will there be a delayed opening later in the fall? Will we postpone until the second quarter or the second semester? Will we open with a virtual campus mm -hmm. as, as many schools have right now? And in addition to those questions about opening the schools, the admissions offices in particular are faced with questions about recruitment of the class of 2021. Will they even be able to travel? Will right. there be high school visits? Will there be college fairs? So all of these questions are being addressed on a daily basis and schools are offering answers as soon as they've been able to make sound decisions. Yeah, this is a huge topic of conversation around our dinner table because we have two high school juniors right now who are just starting mm -hmm. the college application process. So we were going to go on a few college campus visits. That's now off the table. So what's the message for high school juniors right now who would normally be starting the application process? So my message to the juniors in some ways would be similar as the message to the seniors. First of all, take a deep breath. You are not in this alone. There are millions of students around the world in exactly the same position as you are. And I would want to assure them that your future is still ahead of you. It just may look different and the road that you take to get there may be different. I would encourage juniors to be open-minded, to be flexible, to begin gathering information through virtual platforms, to stay on top of announcements concerning standardized testing. As many colleges and universities are changing their use of standardized testing, at least for the fall of 
2020 as they look at the next senior class. And there may be more changes about that coming down the road. Right, because I, from what I understand, some colleges aren't necessarily now going to be looking at those what were once ever so important SAT scores, ACT scores, correct? That is correct. Many colleges are looking at that. And I think the underlying concern here is that colleges and universities are looking to lessen the anxiety of students, provide them with transparency in terms of the materials they'll be looking at while they're reviewing uh, their class for, for the year 2021. They want to make sure that they can level the playing field as much as possible, lessen the anxiety, and provide opportunities to students moving forward. All right, Jane Fonash, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate all of that insight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We turn again now to Dr. Jen Ashton, who has answers to a whole new crop of your questions on the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Jen, we'll get to the first question. This is a really interesting one. Do we know if everyone who's had it will show the antibodies? So many people say they've had it, though they weren't tested, wondering if the antibody test might show they never did. We certainly all know people who say, hey, I think I had it, but you don't really know. Absolutely. And there's so much hope hinging on this serology testing or antibody testing, Amy. Basically, in general, the hope is by checking for these antibodies in someone's blood, you can divide them up into basically three categories. Those who are susceptible, who have never had coronavirus, those who are maybe currently infected, those antibodies sometimes can tell us if you're in that category, and then those who have recovered. But it is still too early to know with this particular virus how those antibodies appear, how strong they are, how long they last, and what degree of immunity they can give someone. So there are so many unknowns, but so much hope hinging on that because that information will be really critical. And this next question, interesting, because now we're hearing that 25 to 50 percent of people who have COVID-19 may be asymptomatic. This next question, how exactly does an asymptomatic person spread the virus? Is it in their breathing, droplets, or touch? So remember, the assumption with this coronavirus is like other coronaviruses, the major route of transmission is via respiratory droplets. So there's a lot of attention placed on coughing and sneezing, but we still can emit these particles with breathing, with talking, with laughing. So that is still the presumption that that's the major route of transmission, even in someone who is asymptomatic, because they're still doing those things. Secondary possibility is obviously they touch their mouth, their face, they touch a surface or shake hands with you, and then you do the same thing. I'm really curious to hear your answer to this next one, because you referenced this earlier in the broadcast. In South Korea, 116 people cleared of the virus have tested positive again. Does that raise concerns that patients who had it don't necessarily develop immunity? Well, not exactly, because remember, these people in South Korea who were tested were tested again with a nasal swab. They weren't tested with blood antibody testing. So there are a couple of possibilities here. Either their test at which they were told they were negative was a false negative. No test is 100 percent accurate. So that's a possibility. They could have had a reactivation of this virus. We see that with other viruses. So that's a possibility. 
or they could have been reinfected. So that is why if I were designing a study, Amy, and I knew someone was positive, I would test them every single day with a nasal swab well out beyond the point that they had no symptoms and I got a negative just to follow uh, these types of results in the future. But this is the scientific method, and that's why we're still doing this research and collecting this data. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate all of your advice and expertise. And remember, you too can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Still ahead on what you need to know, the $1 million relief fund to help minority-owned businesses, the hair care and beauty brand here to announce the new initiative that's coming up next, and the beat battle heating up between two popular Grammy winners. We'll be right back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Recent statistics show more than 11.5 million companies are owned by women, generating more than a trillion dollars in sales. And now hair care and beauty brand Shea Moisture and parent company Sundial Brands is stepping in to help out in the coronavirus emergency, announcing a $1 million relief fund to help minority business owners. The CEO of Sundial Brands, Kara Sabin, is here to tell us all about it. Kara, thanks for being with us. Tell us more about how the relief fund will work and how will the small businesses be selected. Thank you. First of all, it's so it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, we know that women of color uh, businesses have long suffered from economic disparity, and COVID-19 is really intensifying that. So Shea Moisture is pleased to announce a million-dollar relief fund, which we believe is the biggest of its kind. Uh, if you look at small business owners, and particularly women of color, they're starting new businesses at 4.5 times the rate uh, as the general public. Yet in their first year of operating, only 1% of their funding comes from bank loans versus 7% of of white owners. So Shea Moisture is trying to fill that need and um, be a catalyst to not only enable these businesses to survive in this very acute period, but to thrive in the long term. I love that. And, you know, we all know that these are difficult times. We know that small businesses are struggling. But in difficult times, sometimes opportunities can arise. Would you recommend someone starting a small business right now? It's an interesting question. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And in times of crisis, we actually see shifts in consumer behavior. And those shifts in consumer behavior often lend themselves to new business opportunities. Um, So through our work with the entrepreneurial community at Shea Moisture, we've seen this firsthand. We've seen the ingenuity of small businesses. So if there is an owner out there that has an idea, that has a passion, um, it can really fill a need in a white space. This this could be a very good time. Kara, can you explain to us how you're going to select which businesses will receive some of the money that you're rewarding? Sure. So we are particularly interested in businesses that are doing their part to be of service to the community and really pay it forward. Um, For example, we're looking at businesses that are looking to convene communities online or provide a product or service um, in this new virtual society that we're living in right now, or even shifting from a physical business to an e-commerce platform. Uh, Those are the businesses that we're looking, uh, looking forward and uh, also looking to award businesses that, again, as I said, are really paying it forward and helping their community. 
That's great. And considering, by the way, that Shea Moisture was once a small business, what are some words of encouragement you can give to small businesses out there who may be struggling? As a, you know, starting as a small business founded by the Dennis family, uh, this really does hit home for us. And we know that small businesses often face challenges and barriers, um, and that can also be generational. So, for example, in my own family, my grandfather was a barber and a community activist, and he survived, uh, survived redlining and Jim Crow and was able to have a business thrive over 70 years. And so at Shea Moisture, we're looking to be that catalyst to find these businesses that can really you know, stand the test of time and survive uh, generationally. Well, you certainly are doing your part to help. Kara Sabin, thank you for your time and for your generosity. We wish you the best. Thank you so much. And we're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for some final thoughts today. Dr. Jen? Well, Amy, of course, it's springtime. And um, when people do venture outside their homes, they're seeing some flowers, I think, pop up. So something that I read on Vox.com really caught my eye. It's an article about what plants can teach us humans about surviving a pandemic. Really interesting. Based on a new study published in the journal New Phytologist, all about plant life. But basically, it talks about how flowers have a certain symmetry to them. You know that if you're looking at a tulip or an orchid or a sunflower, for example, and that symmetry actually has an effect on how those flowers can be pollinated, which, of course, is important for to sustain their their life cycle. This study actually looked at when plants or flowers were damaged by an accident or trauma and whether their stalk was bent and that symmetry was affected. And it And it discovered that flowers actually have an ability to change the direction based on accident or trauma so that they can still be pollinated. And I just thought it was such an incredible metaphor for what we're going through. Obviously, our life is a little more complicated, um, but sometimes in in the setting of such chaos, there is a sense of calm in looking at something science-based that is so simple and simplistic. So check out the article. I thought it was amazing and um, definitely is giving me a lot to think about um, and a lot to admire about how flowers and plants adapt and demonstrate resilience. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights, as always. And we have a treat for everyone just ahead. Grammy Award producer, rapper, singer, and songwriters Timbaland and Swiss Beats when we come back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Quarantine music fans getting the treat of a lifetime thanks to a new online beat battle music series. It's called Verses. And if you need a real pick-me-up during this time of isolation, well, you got to get in on the fun. Here to tell us all about it is Grammy Award-winning music icon Swiss Beats and Timbaland. Thank you both for being with us. We appreciate it. And Timbaland, you and Swiss were one of the first to feature that online battle during the quarantine. You kicked it off a series by going head-to-head. Tell me why you decided to do it. It was something me and Swiss planned three and a half years ago, and I just felt that the timing of what we was going through was the right time. I mean, it was in my spirit, and I called him. I'm like, man, you know, what we started, we should finish. We should start now. We started now. And we just did it. We didn't think about it. It just clicked right away. 
We put it on. We put it on. We put it on for the people. Yeah, you certainly did. And Squiz, that battle went on for hours. A lot of great throwbacks. 850,000 people plus watching. So I got to ask you, yes. Squiz, who was who ultimately won? Well, I think the people won. And I want to I want to give a shout out to New York City, home of the brave and all of the first responders in New York City first. But I feel that the people won, the culture won, music won. Uh, since me and Tim been doing the battle, all of the artists' catalogs been going up 100%. All of the artists' business been going up 100%. And the people have been able to educate themselves on these particular artists that wouldn't probably have gotten their flowers uh, in 2020. Timbaland, I've got to mention some of the names who dropped in to check out the battle. Everyone from Drake and Diddy to Chance the Rapper, Dana White. How did it feel to get all of that support from from the top down? Um, it was a blessing, you know. It's, it's a blessing to see everybody having fun and remembering the times of when music made you feel a certain way. And when you hear those classic <laughs> records, you actually forget who created those records. So me and Swiss really wanted to shine the highlight on the creators, such as like Jonte, Austin, and Neil. Nobody really knew Jonte did all those great records that, you know, we don't know, but we gave him his flowers that night and um, his catalog went through the roof. It's amazing to see our peers enjoying this the way we thought they would enjoy it. Yeah, e even more so. And, and Squiz, the great news here is you're actually going to keep it going. So who else are we going to see? This Saturday, we have the legendary Babyface and the legendary Teddy Riley, which is going to be a, an amazing showdown, an amazing educational celebration, because that's what we call it. A lot of people call it battles. You know, we're battling enough in the world today. So we want to give people an educational music, creative celebration experience. And that's what Versus bring to the table. We, we, we plan on uh, celebrating even after the quarantine, whenever this is up. Well, you guys are bringing the music to all of us, and we certainly appreciate it. Swiss Beats and Timbaland, thank you both for being with us today. We certainly wish you health and happiness. And again, thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. And thank you to all of the first responders out there once again. Our hats off yes. to all of them. Thank you both. And that's what you need to know for this Tuesday. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.